Welcome to The Strategic Investor. Join us as we interview some of the world's most productive asset managers and uncover sophisticated and unique investment strategies in the markets. Here is your host, Charlie Wright. Hello and welcome to Strategic Investor Radio and OC Talk Radio, where we bring you investment strategies you are not hearing elsewhere. I'm Charlie Wright. Very pleased you've joined us today. Can promise you a very interesting conversation. We'd like to welcome back for the second time in just a few weeks, Mark Landis, founder and chief investment officer of Wavelength Capital. He speaks to us from the headquarters in New York City. Mark, welcome back to Strategic Investor Radio. Charlie, thank you so much for having me once again. It's 90 degrees in New York, and I'm waiting for my picture of margaritas over there. Okay. Well, hopefully uh, you'll be able to enjoy them even more after, after talking with us here. So the reason we've had you back, Mark, as you know, is that, uh, well, first you have a background in fixed income securities with Credit Suisse, different hedge funds, etc. And today our topic is an insider's view to the credit crisis of 2008. This is the first time we have done this. We've tried more than once, but uh, this is the first time we've been able to pull it off. There have been several books written on the subject. Uh, Well, many books written on the subject. I've read several of them. Probably the most popular is The Big Short, uh, which is both a book and a movie. I read the book, saw the movie, and uh, but we've never really talked to someone who was literally on the inside in fixed income on Wall Street to get their insider's view and look at what happened here. So, Mark, thank you very much for joining us and being willing to do this. Thank you, Charlie. Happy to do it today. So, Mark, uh, first of all, uh, tell us your whereabouts and your roles just prior to and during that credit crisis of 2008. Uh, Before joining uh, my current firm, Wavelength Capital. I spent 17 years at Credit Suisse, where I I basically held a multitude of jobs. I headed up all the fixed income sales globally, research globally, structuring as well. Credit Suisse, for, for, for background, after our merger with DLJ in 2001, was probably the largest player in structured credit, which included residential mortgages, commercial mortgage backed securities, CDOs, collateralized debt obligations, CLOs, uh, asset-backed securities, and actually their derivatives. And funny, in my capacity, I have either met or directly worked with all the players that were in the big short (laughs) at one time or another. Wow, very interesting. I've never heard anybody say they've met one of those here. So. After the crisis, I worked at one of the premier hedge funds, as you said, uh, Tiger, that was part of the Tiger Management Complex, um, and then ran fixed income at the second largest bank in France, Sakchen. Um, we started our current firm, Wavelength Capital Management, in 2013, really to solve some of the problems that, that people see investing uh, in fixed income, and particularly now during rising rates. So, uh, so tell us, Mark, now, now let's start at the 10,000-foot level here, okay? Tell us, how would you describe what you see and what you believe were the primary causes of the credit crisis of 2008? Ben Bernanke testified in, uh, in September of 2010 regarding the co- what he thought were the causes of the crisis. One, there were shocks or triggers 
i.e. particular events that touched off the crisis, and two, vulnerabilities, structural weaknesses in the financial system themselves that amplified the shocks, basically saying nothing. To me, <laughs> there were five factors that led up to and, and caused the crisis. There was flawed regulation and supervision, certainly. Flawed or too little? I would say flawed. Um, and, and in essence, if they're flawed, that means there's, there's probably too little regulation in certain areas. Um, two, bad incentives, sure. Uh, three, leverage and underestimating the risks that, that, that are involved in financial engineering. Remember, models are as good as the inputs into the models themselves. Right. Four, short-term funding decisions and corresponding runs on those markets uh, was a big factor. And then finally, five, uh, the credit rating agencies' failures, some say, or more importantly, I think the reliance at that point. Well, very interesting. Now, at the end, we're going to come back and we're going to ask the question, Mark, so prepare to answer, did Dodd-Frank and the other government regulations and, and, and uh, the industry and government's efforts, did they resolve those issues for moving forward? But for right now, let's, let's start by asking here, what are some things that you saw that the rest of us didn't see because we were not on the inside? I guess there was probably a lot. Um, but let's come back to that. And, uh, you know, I, I saw things, you know, with AIG. You know, we, we were, they were, we were their, I guess, their largest counterparty at one particular point. I saw things with, with the rating agencies having lived that, that sort of life. But I think one of the things, you know, if, if, if you, you know, some of the things that, that people miss in general uh, on the, uh, on the uh, on the crisis itself is really the historical perspective. You know, to me, there's really history dating back as far as 1968. So, you know, 50 years of of of, of or 40 years of of things that that occurred. You know, that were not because people wanted something bad to happen 40 years ago, but it was just. A, a product, a result of that. You know, let's take a brief history of mortgage markets. You know, for most of the 20th century, mortgage lending took place mostly at banks, thrifts, S&Ls, and the most common type of mortgage was a fixed rate, and most of the financial institutions originating the mortgages held these on their books. This really began to change dramatically in 1968. Fannie Mae, which, you know, was originally created in 1938 and was an actual government entity, was chartered by the Congress at that point uh, to be a government-sponsored entity. What people, and you probably have heard, GSEs. Two years later, Freddie Mac was chartered to be the same thing. And remember, Fannie was originally, when it was originally created, you know, and as a GSE and Freddie as well, created a liquid secondary market for mortgages. You know, this meant that, and, you know, positively, that financial institutions could sell their mortgages, de-risk their balance sheets, and could then make additional loans, which then allowed more and more people to buy houses, per se. Right. 
Fannie and Freddie, as a private entity, was tasked, like any other company, with making the most amount of money. So you were an investor, if you're investing in Ford, you know, you want Ford to make and sell the most amount of cars because you're an equity stakeholder as far as that goes. The problem is, is that Fannie and, and Freddie were, were the same. So their job was to make the most amount of money for their shareholders. You know, this pressure led to banned incentives and behavior. You know, the CEO's job was to make the most amount of money for the company. And I, I remember that, reading uh, at that time Franklin Raines, who was the uh, CEO of uh, what what Fannie Mae, I believe. Yep. Uh, I think his uh, his bonus, like in six in uh, two thousand seven, was like seventy five million dollars. That's correct. Yeah. But 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 you know, for more than three decades decades, and and um, there was a, a gentleman by the name of Craig. Parsegian, who worked with me at Credit Suisse, who ran Freddie Mac, you know, before before the crisis itself, and you know, he went from heading all of global research at 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 that point it was first Boston to go to Freddie Mac, and it wasn't because he was going to take a, a a smaller pay. <laughs> right. He wasn't taking less money to go to a public quote unquote public entity. But Fannie and Freddie made huge profits for more than three decades. You know, their traditional business model involved, you know, two, excuse me, market activities. One, mortgage securitization, where they would purchase mortgages, securitize them, and sell those to third-party markets. And they provided basically an implicit government guarantee that against losses. You know, the second thing that they did, which you know, over time became the major profit center was that they maintained on their balance sheets mortgage, their mortgage portfolio and that they funded through their being a GSE, quasi-government, as, as people looked at it, at a much lower rate than everyone else. So they would issue that by higher-yielding, low, riskier parts of, of the mortgage capital structure and basically take that carry. You know, it was it was in the best interest of their shareholders. Right, right. Okay. I guess. Go, go, go ahead. ahead. Okay. No, I was just going to say that there was another historical thing that 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 people forget about, which you know, as I said, this the crisis didn't happen overnight. It happened forty years before with with Fannie Mae and. and in 1997, I would I would say the the, the TRA 97, which was the Taxpayer Relief Act of 97, if you remember, you would remember Charlie. I would remember. Most people don't remember. Was they lowered the max tax rate on capital gains for individuals from 28 to 20 percent for assets held more than 18 months? Right. Interestingly, the dividend tax rates were left unchanged. They continue to be taxed at the same rate as regular income which provided a powerful incentive for investors to treat the two stocks very differently. That, a lot of people look at, was sort of the, the impetus of the dot-com problem, was that, yeah. you know, you're not going to, to buy, um, buy, if you're getting paid, paid basically to take more risk because you, versus the, um, versus the, the dividend, then you should do that. But what that, what that eventually led to was a lower, you know, was a, a recession in 2001. Then Fed had to, to lower rates. At the same time, you had these emerging market nations saw huge growth in savings 
due to ongoing trade imbalances, which led to significant declines in longer-term rates. The banks, at low rates, weren't making as much money, and all of a sudden they, they look over at, at Freddie and Fannie at the you know, amount of money that they've been making, and they said, hey, we can do the same sort of thing. Okay. So, so tell us, you know, the, the movie The Big Short and, and the book The Big Short, yep. uh, it, 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 it shows through four people. Uh, well, for four groups that, uh, hey, they had this thing nailed. Now, they're, they're, they were fortunate in terms of their timing, but they did recognize the inadequacies and flaws and disconnects in the system. Uh, did other people recognize it at the time? You were in the belly of the beast. Did you or others ever raise your head, raise your hand and say, this doesn't make sense here, and we've got disconnects in the market, and at some point disconnects create problems that have to be dealt with. Or was everybody just totally shocked when things fell apart so rapidly? No, I think, I think Charlie, you hit the nail on the head. I think people always understood the disconnects, but they're always, you have to understand the, the, the life cycle within some of these banks, and and, and investment banks and insurance companies, and again, we'll, we'll go back to incentivization and, and how things changed and what we should be thinking about as, as far as, as those sort of things go. But you were incented to make money that year. You weren't incented to make money in two years because if you had to look, make the shareholder happy, which if the shareholder is happy, you would get paid, th- that sort of thing. So, and, you know, as, as you would, talked about a little bit before, you know, these were some of the smartest minds in the world. So, you know, you would say, this doesn't make sense. But at the end of the day, you're making money on it. And at the end of the day, you know, the smartest minds are validating it. And at the end of the day, you're seeing the rating agencies and everyone else. And so you then go back to your your part of the job, which is, you know, a piece of this overall mess if yeah. that makes any sort of sense. Yeah. So, so you had mentioned earlier to me, Mark, uh, uh, in, in, in private before we came on, uh, that you were in a meeting one time, and these guys waltzed in, and they uh, were proposing a synthetic CDO squared. Uh, now, of course, nobody knows what that means, um, especially uh, today, but, but I'm sure at the time. Did people just buy into this because it looks so good? Or did people, were they often rejected or were they just bought into wholesale here by, like you say, some of the smartest people with the, 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 the most uh, information and computers and, and algorithms, etc., available to humankind at the time? I don't think people bought into it just let's you know jump in the pool and you know everything is good around us and uh, and all that other sort of thing but you have to realize that that much like the Fannie and Freddie of the world with with the 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 government um, wrap around it which makes everyone feel safe to buy something because at the end of the day it's government AAA rated and I, I think it's a flaw within within uh, finance in general at this particular point, and we won't go down, down that rabbit hole in any way, shape, or form. But if you have Fannie and Freddie, which is which is a government, quote-unquote, government entity, you would think that it's somewhat safe. You also have the world where, you know, the, the, the rating agencies were, and people 
people still to this day, if something is, is AAA versus AA versus single A versus a B or C or whatever, they're looking at that as, as a measure of risk for them. So, you know, you look at, at something like, and again, my, fav- my favorite instrument was that synthetic CDO squared. The rating agencies really, you know, were, were in a world at that particular point where they earned as much as three times more for grading these complex products than corporate bonds. So their traditional business of rating corporate bonds, they were making three times as much. The rating agencies also competed with each other to rate particular MBS CDO securities issued by the investment banks. The 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 the, the more interesting part about that, so if, if we were you know, if you had a security, you needed for people to buy it a rating, which was a third party, <laughs> which you trusted, that they knew what they were talking about. They understood what it, that what went on. The interesting thing is that the rating agencies relied on the information provided by the originators of some of these synthetic products, you know, which was, at that point, it was, it was written. You had the smartest minds at the at the places. You then would give it to the rating agencies to to look at because you know if you think that Fannie, Freddie, Fitch, S and P, or Fannie, Freddie, Fitch, Fitch, S and P, Duff and Phelps, you know, all three of these, four of these, five of these rating agencies really did not have the wherewithal to create the same models that you know, the investment banks had, and subsequently they were competing with each other to get these particular deals. Yeah, and I understand that up to 40% of credit agencies' revenues and income came from these advanced kinds of products. So obviously they don't want to turn too many down, right? That's exactly right. From 2000 to 2006, structured finance, which included these CDOs, accounted for 40% of the revenues of the credit rating agencies. And during that time, you know, one major rating agency had its stock increase sixfold and and earnings grew by by more than 900%. So obviously it was good for them. So so we know that one of the culprits were the the, the credit agencies, but it was not them alone. Talk to us about the leverage. Um... Well, I think leverage in general, it, it's how you measure leverage. And, 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 you know, we can talk about leverage. We can talk about AIG, if that makes any sort of sense. I can, you know, Definitely get a makes little sense, sense yeah. as, as, as far as, as, as that goes. You know, AIG and what happened with AIG is, is a mystery to a lot of people. It, it, it is complicated, but, but what they did, the company's credit default swaps, are generally cited as playing, you know, the major role in the collapse of AIG, right? Um, where they lost thirty-two billion dollars, as far as that goes. And you know, the interesting thing about AIG credit default swaps was, you know, they were finan- they were financial instruments, and the the, the actual um, swap itself, the 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 paperwork that went along with a swap, you know, they act like an insurance contract on bonds. So in these transactions, the insurance seller, in some way, AIG, becomes basically the bond holder. 
And if you think about it, the interesting thing about AIG, and we, you knew that, why would you want to buy insurance on on something bad? You would want to buy, or potentially bad, a CDO, CLO, mortgage, or all that other sort of things. You'd buy it as a hedge. AIG, as a counterparty, was AAA. The swap contract, the value of the underlying, within the swap contract, the value of the underlying asset will change. And one party will pay the other party money, basically called collateral, based on the change of that collateral back and forth. Interesting enough, AIG, which had written credit default swaps on over $500 billion in assets, they didn't move that collateral back and forth like everyone else, what they did was in their in their um, in their actual contract themselves, the agreement said that the collateral was owed only if market changes exceeded a certain value of AIG's credit rating. So AIG had to be go down a trading rating. AIG had been a AAA bank forever and ever. So the normal transition of money that goes from one entity to another in a swap contract didn't occur because AIG had a special contract itself because no one ever expected AIG because it's AAA and so big and all that other sort of thing to to ever. It went down, and guess what? AIG owed $32 billion in the next day, which is why basically they had they went down. So inherent, you had inherent within AIG because they didn't hedge this, you had inherent leverage within the system itself to the tune of $500 billion in assets they had done before. So it's actually, you know, people understanding what what went on and what the inherent leverage was within some of these securities. So, so how did they get away with that? It was it that nobody understood that? I, I guess the government regulators uh, didn't understand it and, and were not regulating that. And what about the heads of AIG and uh, uh, Merrill Lynch and these other companies? Uh, th- did they just ignore it? Did they not understand it? Why did they allow it? Oh, they certainly understood it. You know, you, you, the, you know one, one of the major selling points of... of AIG as a counterparty was the fact that, number one, they were AAA, and people knew that they were AAA, and number two, you didn't have to move money back and forth. So so I think it was an inherent, you know, within AIG itself, I would say it was inherently an issue as far as, as oversight and understanding of, you know, the potential risks within that itself. As far as the street goes, sure. You know, they, they did know. The, the Merrill Lynch's of the world and the person who was in charge of of the CDO, CLO world at Merrill Lynch, which, you know, ultimately was a, a big, big part of of what happened um, with, with, with them being swall- swallowed by Bank of America, was, was used to work at my firm. So... <laughs> Really? So, so, so we, you know, there are a lot of inherent things and 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 risks willing to be t- be taken by different entities that you know some entities would not do. So, you know, we could we could uh, listen to you all day on this stuff, Mark. This is absolutely fascinating. Unfortunately, we don't have all day. So, let's go to where we are today. So, l- let me ask this question: uh, Last December, so we're talking four or five months ago. 
I attended a conference here uh, in Orange County at a beautiful hotel, and there was a sister conference going on at the same time that I had been unaware of. And so uh, I went over to the sister conference because it was uh, being, being run by the same people that was running the conference I was attending, and I went through the exhibitors. That sister conference, and again, I was unaware of that sister conference until I walked in there. It was, it was a conference on CLOs. And I said, wow, interesting. Let's see who's here. I walked in. The exhibitors were all names that I knew. We're talking, you know, Goldman Sachs, biggest banks, biggest um, companies on Wall Street, etc. Now, at the very close of the movie The Big Short, it actually says, you know, have we made improvements? And then it asks a question, you know, uh, we don't know. And then it identifies either CLOs or CDOs, okay, and says they're now doing this again. So are CLOs today, are they different from the CLOs before? Are they being allowed by Dodd-Frank? Uh, is the government <laughs> overlooking this more than it did in the past? Where are we today, not just specifically with CLOs, but with all of these issues that occurred in 2008, which was only 10 years ago, are we better protected today? That's a multi, multi-pronged question, which, again, I could answer in, in as far as the CLO market, CLO market goes, uh, CLOs are not only where they were in 2008, CLOs are, are, I would say, six or seven times as large as they were before. That being said, a CLO, um, through the crisis, if you look historically through the crisis, they actually, and the AAA part of the CLO being the, 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 the thing that, that most people are buying, the default rate, I think, was somewhat less than 1%. So, so, so realize that it actually was a good security in one way, shape, or form, which is why I think it's come back to the degree that it's come back. I don't think they're doing synthetic um, CDO squares anymore, though, <laughs> when it comes to that. But the basic CLO but, market... But that's very to encouraging to hear. I, I was unaware of that. So CLOs, so, so, I was unaware. Right. So uh, the, the CLO market, I, I see no, no, no issues with that. I don't... Our firm doesn't invest in that because our number one thing is is, is uh, liquidity, and you know, in a crisis, these things will not. But but nine nine times out of ten, ninety nine out of a hundred, they're going to pay as far as as that sort of stuff goes. But to your question on um, you know Dodd Frank on Dodd Frank and whether we're safe, right. to me to me the banks are definitely safe for now. And to me, even this, the, the shadow banking uh, world, which was, you know, at one point, you know, was bigger than the, the actual bank world itself. And the shadow banking world were the people that were, uh, you know, hedge funds, insurance companies, broker-dealers that, that didn't have the regulation with, uh, that the banks had. I, I, I think that Dodd-Frank... You know, we can we can all talk about what you know the intricacies of Dodd Frank, but the oversight on these things are what they are. To me, you know, in my lifetime, you know, I'm 
fortunately, I've, I've survived SNL crisis. I've survived long-term credit, the Russia crisis, Argentina, dot-com, 2008, European banks, etc. All of it goes back to leverage. And so to me, it's the understanding of where inherent leverage goes, is within the, the, uh, the banking, uh, is within the system itself. You know, to me, there's still too much reliance on sort of third-party independent ratings that, that people put into it. So, you know, I think at the end of the day, there's, there's more work that, that has been done, but Dodd-Frank itself didn't address specifically the rating agencies. But the rating agencies are who they are, and rating agencies can be Morningstar, they could be any of these, these other people. They're really good. They're really smart. They have the things, but I think people still rely too much on them. Some of the things that really that, that do worry me going forward, you know, the foreign economies are huge and growing. So financial globalization, international capital flows and global imbalances make the U.S. and other nations pretty vulnerable to events in other parts of the world. And the interesting thing about the 2008 crisis is that, you know, Europe went into recession, and and we all know what happened with Japan. So it wasn't just, you know, specifically within the U.S., and I think that's another part of the the overall things that the overall issues that people forget is that the globalization of of the economies are what they are and it really is it's it's becoming less and less you know multi multi economies which there always will be and there's always cultures and all that other stuff but it is becoming a global economy in one sort of thing so something that happens in 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 China you know can can more than affect the end of the world but we can't regulate that you know mark uh, again th- this is fascinating stuff here unfortunately our, our time is uh, is up in uh, any final thoughts for our listeners or anything you'd like to again emphasize here but before we have to close no i think i think that at some point you know we we as i as, as i mentioned it, it, we, we we've got we went 80 years between 1929 and 2008 and and in our lifetime hopefully it doesn't have to be that we go 160 years that being said that you know i i don't think there's any way to avoid you know what what and when you know the next crisis has and will occur yeah i i i certainly understand what you're saying so mark again thank you very very much for joining us this has been fascinating stuff and we keep our fingers crossed every day that uh, that is well behind us and we'll not see the likes of it uh, again at least in in our lifetimes here so thank you very much for for joining us and again our best wishes to you and to wavelength capital for continued success here mark thank you charlie Again, we've been talking with Mark Landis on a fascinating topic of an insider's view to the credit crisis of 2008. You've been listening to Strategic Investor Radio and OC Talk Radio. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's program at info at strategicinvestorradio.com. And go to our website to hear podcasts of all of our interviews and shows, strategicinvestorradio.com. I'm Charlie Wright, and we wish you an enjoyable week and productive investing. Strategic Investor Radio is a production of OC Talk Radio and is provided for educational purposes only. 
Content of this program and the views of the guests should not be considered as recommendations by OC Talk Radio or investment advice from the host, Charlie Wright, or any other entity attached to this production. Investors should always consult qualified financial, investment, tax, or legal professionals prior to investing. 